All right. Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 4, verses 10, and then 14 through 18. We're going to take verses 11, 12, and 13 separately next week because they're sort of another parenthetical teaching within what we're covering today. Um, I think it would have been a remarkable thing to hear the Apostle Paul teach, but I think he... Uh, I think he got sidetracked a lot as in his teaching, at least he does in his letters, you know. So here's our text. Paul says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Here at Calvary, we have some very strong feelings about how the church is to discuss the subject of money. Uh, we take it very seriously. The way that we do things isn't the only way to do them, of course, um, but we feel passionately that the church is not to burden God's people and beg them for money. Now, this happens a lot throughout the world in the church, and it, that's sad to us. We don't see that as a biblical model uh, from the scriptures. We think of it as fleecing God's sheep, frankly, when you see churches constantly guilting people into giving more and more and more, creating the idea that God and the ministry is dependent on money. That is not the case whatsoever. So in the pulpit, we try hard to talk about money and giving only when it comes up in the text that we're studying. This morning it does, and so we're going to talk about that. Paul gives some very interesting insight into what God thinks of our financial giving to the work of his kingdom. And I say financial giving because one of the things that we tend to do sometimes in our culture at large uh, is that we tend to try to substitute other things for money whenever we talk about giving for God. Sometimes Christians will try to talk about, well, I don't give money, but I tithe my time or my prayers or, or something else. In the Bible, uh, God clearly commands his people that they are to give money to the work of the gospel. And this text gives some details on how that works out and what it then means for us spiritually. And so the spoil alert is that God gives that command for our benefit, not because he is dependent on us. And so let's get into it. Verse 10, again, Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. The very first thing we notice is that Paul gets excited about the fact that the church in Philippi was giving financially to the work of the Lord. But he wasn't excited because it meant he was getting a paycheck. Uh, in fact, he plainly says that down in verse 17, which we'll see. We also know that when he wasn't imprisoned, Paul worked a job as a tent maker so that he could help support himself and so that he wasn't dependent on the church's support. So it wasn't that he was going to go out and buy some new stuff with their money. That's not why he was excited. He did teach that it was right for the church to support uh, its ministers, but as he traveled around, he wanted to set an example for them and prove to them that he wasn't uh, out to profit from them. No, he was rejoicing because of the benefits they, as believers and as a church, would receive as a result of their giving. 
Now, depending on your translation, uh, you know, at least for me, the next part of the verse in verse 10 there could seem a little bit confusing as he's talking about them caring or not caring. And some of the different translations kind of make the words seem a little bit confusing, at least in my reading. Uh, the church in Philippi certainly did care about Paul's well-being and the work that God had set before him to do. They cared very passionately. But the problem was that they lacked opportunity, he said. Because back then, communicating with someone out of town was no small task. It's something I certainly take for granted uh, in this day and age. The letter and the gift that Paul had received from them and this letter that he was writing back had to be sent by hand and by foot through a messenger who had to risk the, the incredible dangers of a lengthy travel um, across you know, dangerous roads. It was months and months and months just to get a letter to someone. And so obviously, as Paul the Apostle travels around the Mediterranean and Asia, it would have been essentially impossible for the local church in Philippi to get a letter and funds to him as he was, you know, being shipwrecked and things like that. Uh, but now they had heard, okay, Paul's a prisoner of Rome now. He's stuck there. He was stationary, and the believers in Philippi were then able to get him some support for his needs and his ministry. They're like, okay, you know, it's a drag where our hearts are broken for you that you're a prisoner, but, man, you're in one place, so we can send Epaphroditus with some money and some uh, uh, updates about what's going on. That was what was going on. They lacked opportunity until he was there in Rome. Verse 14, drop on down. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. It's clear to us that all around the world there are people in distress. I don't think there is any uh, mistaking that. Um, that's part of the reason why we read these stories every Wednesday morning from the news. You know, the world is in distress. Christians are in distress. God has revealed to us in his word that when we as believers reach out with love and compassion and truth to the poor and the distressed and the afflicted in this world, he is pleased. Uh, it's very plain and very, very clearly presented in the scripture. Now, specifically regarding this text, Paul is teaching that when we extend care and our financial resources to our fellow Christians who are suffering or persecuted or afflicted, we have done well. And this is no small subject in the scriptures. After all, that is the phrase which we seek to hear at the end of our lives, isn't it? Well done, good and faithful servant. And Paul throughout this letter has detailed this, how we embrace the Christian life to the fullest so that we can hasten that wonderful transformation that the Lord wants to do in us. And in this verse, we're given an actual shortcut. If we're trying to get to that moment where the Lord says, hey, well done. Paul says, man, I have a secret for you. If you want to do well, if you want to move faster in that well done path, give to the work of God and you have done well in that regard. We all want to know the will of God for our lives. That is, you know, obvious. And not all of the steps of our lives are clearly laid out before us. As most Bible teachers point out, if the Lord revealed everything he was going to do in our life, we wouldn't do it. If the Lord had come to Job and said, hey, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to kill your family. I'm going to take everything away from you. I'm going to cover, you know, allow you to be covered in boils and be on an ash heap i don't think joe would be like yeah that's so exciting let's go ahead and do this you know and so not every step of our lives are clearly laid out before us but in the bible there are a number of things that are plain and simple when it comes to god's will not everything is shrouded in mystery there are some things that god says this is my will 
that you love one another and that your joy may be full, that you serve in the church, that you lay down your life for your wife and love her as Christ loved the church. Clear things where it's not a question mark for us. And so there are plain and simple things like this. Do you want to do well as a Christian? Well, one of the ways you can do God's will according to the Bible is by giving financially to the work of the kingdom. That's the deal. And, um, you know, it's a nice thing that the Lord has said out and out, hey, you please me by doing this. It's kind of like, a, the, you know, a free answer to the test, you know, or on your test, it's like, hey, this is kind of an open book test. This page of the test is open book, you know, and, and uh, it's an interesting thing. When we give financially to the ministry and to those who are afflicted and distressed, the Bible says we are doing something good and beautiful, something that pleases the Lord. Verse 15. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. So again, in case it wasn't clear, Paul is definitely, absolutely talking about Christians giving money to God's work. It's a calling we've all received and an opportunity we all have. If we look in the Bible for principles on how to give to God, we find clear directives, and most of us know this, that we are to give regularly, sacrificially, and joyfully. That's kind of God's principles for how a person should give. We see here that the Philippians hadn't just sent Paul on his way from Philippi with a few bucks out of guilt. Um, and that's an important thing. Paul had come to their city, having been directed by the Holy Spirit. They had, he had preached the gospel to them. He had started a church. He had been imprisoned and then miraculously set free. And then he even arranged for the local government to keep from persecuting the believers that he was leaving behind. It was a pretty remarkable uh, you know, situation there in the book of Acts. Now, as Paul left, the Philippians gave to him financially for his ministry. But then as we see in verse 16, it wasn't just cab fare. It wasn't like, hey, thanks for coming here and saving us eternally, you know, and, and here's cab fare to get you on your way. It wasn't like that. They, they continued sending aid to him, not because they were motivated by guilt, but because they were motivated by a desire that others might find that which Paul had brought to them. Remember, Paul the Apostle, he's trying to figure out where he's going to go, and the Holy Spirit's like, no, you can't go over here, no, you can't go over there, and then they receive this wonderful Macedonian call. It's this incredible thing that they receive from the Holy Spirit. They go over there, there's nobody there. There's nobody in Philippi. There's a couple women that meet down by the river. And then from that, though, the Lord does this incredible thing where he starts a church and people are saved and there's all this revival going on but then Paul and Silas are imprisoned and then the Lord miraculously you know breaks the prison open with an earthquake but they stay in there and then Paul saves the jailer and his family you know through the work of the gospel and then because he had been illegally beaten and detained he says to the local government oh by the way you illegally beat and detained a Roman citizen what are you going to do about that maybe I'll put a phone call in and they say, hey, just go get out of here. You know, let's, let's let bygones be bygones. He says, no, you're, you're going to not say any. You're not going to do anything to the church that I'm leaving behind, and then I won't rat you out for what you've done to me. And so they had a desire to see Paul, God do that work through Paul in other locations too, as they were set free from sin, as they understood forgiveness and salvation and the eternal future that the Lord had provided for them. I can imagine that as they pressed their coins into his hand that they said to him, you know, we want others to know what you have made known to us. That was their motivation, uh, that there is freedom from sin, there is victory over death, there is heaven for the people of earth. 
And if money can get that information to others, then we will by any means deliver it through you. And so after Paul had departed and went to Thessalonica, the Philippians took initiative and sent aid to him even a second time. He said, man, this guy's gone, but send somebody after him because there are going to be needs and there's going to be you know, uh, debts that he has to pay and, and there's, there's work that the, these funds can do. They had a heart to spread the gospel through the ministry of Paul and to partner with him in the work God had given him, even though he was now doing a work outside of their borders. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma and an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And so as we already saw, Paul wasn't excited about the money for himself. He had what he needed. No, he was excited because he knew that their giving meant that spiritual fruit was going to be deposited into their account. And to me, this is a remarkable thing. As we search for God's purpose in our lives, and as we desire a greater faith and a greater intimacy with God, that is what we desire. As we hunger for the kind of fullness that we see men like Paul having in the Bible, the scriptures are on record as saying that when we give financially to the Lord, not out of guilt, but out of love, spiritual fruit is automatically born in our lives. That is a remarkable thing. Because the Philippians gave to the work of Christ through Paul's ministry, as one commentator puts it, his converts were their converts. And the Lord uh, accounts it to them as, as a reward for them. Those Roman soldiers who had given their lives to Christ, those he had evangelized in Thessalonica and beyond, were spiritual dividends that the Philippians would be rewarded for in eternity simply by investing funds in the kingdom. This is a crazy principle that the Lord has instituted in the church. A penny to God's service is the greatest and most lucrative investment we can make on the earth. Will God return a physical dollar for our physical penny? No, that's not what the Bible teaches, despite what some say. However, God plans something much better for us than a few fleeting riches here on the earth. He guarantees a dramatic return on our heavenly investment. And as Bible teachers are fond of pointing out, it is the only time in the scriptures that God invites us to test him and to try him on a principle. Mal, uh, I almost said Malachi. Malachi 3.10, God says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there, there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. This is the only time God says in the whole Bible, I, I, I challenge you to test me in this promise. And so God desires that we give and commands us to give to his work because of the benefits which it will bring into our life. He says very plainly in his word that it is a good and beautiful thing for us to do, that we are automatically guaranteed a deposit of spiritual fruit and that it greatly pleases him. It pleases him. We're concerned with pleasing God. We want to please God. And God goes on record very plainly. He says, here's a way that you can please me right now. Paul calls it an acceptable, sweet sacrifice to the Lord. It is To give of our finances is an act of worship and submission and love. When we give financially to the king who seeks to save. Now, money, of course, is a very sensitive and touchy subject, especially in the church. Our teaching on the topic is that what you give is between you and your God. That is the teaching. A man cannot tell you how much you give, neither should a man guilt you into giving. God is not in the business of sacrifices of guilt. He doesn't want sacrifices of guilt because he's not dependent on uh, the people of earth. 
Instead, God shows us in his word that he has instituted giving in the Christian life so that we can benefit spiritually and eternally and so that we can partner with him across the earth in his quest to save those who are lost. For the Philippians and for us, there are two prerequisites for giving in this text. There is opportunity and there is desire. For a time, the Philippians lacked opportunity, Paul says. They were disconnected with Paul and unable to reach him with the financial gift that they wanted to give. Uh, At this point in time, in this place that we live, that is never, ever the case for us. Uh, Plain and simple. In the click of a mouse, we can send money to those in need on the other side of the world if we want to. Think Gospel for Asia. We have a local church which is established and able to do ministry through a variety of channels all over this community and beyond using the funds that God's people bring in. There are parachurch organizations locally and nationally that are doing a good work of evangelism and compassion that we support. Organizations like the CPC here in town who are working to save lives spiritually and physically. And so we lack no opportunity in this day and age in the place that we live. Literally, at any moment, we can give $1 or $10,000 to the legitimate work of God's kingdom and receive those dividends. And so that's not the problem for us. The other part, then, we see is desire. And this is where many people in the American church fall short, 97% of us by some uh, research and estimations. Jesus had a great number of warnings for the rich, and uh, we need to pay attention to that. After all, Jesus said it is easier, what, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That is a scary, scary thing to think about when we realize that in real honesty, we are richer than almost everyone else in all of human history. Wealth is relative, I understand that. However, when you look at the world today, the six or seven billion people living on the world, and when you look at human history, the figures are staggering. According to research, right now, if you make $25,000 a year, you are, and I are richer than 90% of the current world population. If you make $50,000 a year, you are richer than 99, 99% of everyone else alive on the earth today. I don't say that to guilt us because guilted giving is not biblical nor beneficial. I say that because we need to understand the opportunity we have and the resources we have if we are willing. And we need to understand that our flesh, which is weak, will automatically throw up these defenses and say, well, there are people richer than me, so that doesn't apply to me. Okay, well, 99% of the people in the world are poorer than I am. That makes me pretty rich from all that I can see. 1 John 3.17 says this, If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Uh, I was surprised when I read that the other day because you think of John, you think, you think James wrote that. You think, well, that's all packed into James, you know. He was kind of cranky all the time. But John is like, look, this is the deal. Um, he's warning the rich. The Philippian believers joined in Paul's distress and sent aid to him. In the same way, we have seen those around us, both near and far, who need help and need compassion. James did have a lot to say about those of us who have money. He says, if you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, hey, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but you don't give them any food or clothing, what good does that do? And so the question is not one of opportunity. We have opportunity every day, easily. But the question is one of desire. Do we desire to please God in this way? Do we desire to receive the incredible offers he's made to us? Or are we content to forego that part of the Christian life and to rationalize or procrastinate our way out of it? 
Paul talks about giving being a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Lord, which blesses him and pleases him and benefits us and helps others who are in such need in no uncertain terms. It blesses the Lord. It pleases the Lord. It's an act of worship. It benefits you heavenly and spiritually, and, and it helps others. And so the question is not, well, should I do this? It's, how should I do this? If we put ourselves in Paul's analogy, the question is this. Am I content to hang out in the temple and not bring my God a sacrifice? Can you imagine that in the, in the Old Testament, people coming into the temple and being like, yeah, there's the presence of God, but I don't need to bring a sacrifice to him. I'm happy to just be hanging out here in the temple. We desire intimacy with God. He desires intimacy with us. When we were dating our wives, did we say, man, honey, I love you. I just love you. But you're not really worth spending my hard-earned money on. Why don't you pay for dinner and you pay for the gas for me to come and pick you up and then I'll pay for mine and that will be better for everybody. That's my love for you. Of course not. If we search our hearts and if we discover that that is the attitude toward God that we have when it comes to giving, then there is a clear disconnect between what God wants for our Christianity and what we are allowing him to do within us. Or look at the Philippian example. When we search our hearts and understand the salvation and the forgiveness of God and the fullness of God, do we have a desire that those around us on the outside receive it as well? Do we want to fill heaven with those who are currently traveling towards hell, or do we not want that? And so God is very clear about giving. It's not complicated. On top of that, God is faithful to personally guide us in our giving by his Holy Spirit between man and God. The question is not should we, the question is how should we? Which Thessalonican can I reach out to today through my finances? How can I invest in the good work of Jesus Christ who has saved me and transformed me? We need to ask ourselves these questions, and we need to be willing to live biblically when it comes to our finances. And if we're not willing to do that, then we need to see what that means for our progress in the Lord and the fullness that he desires for us. It's not about guilt. It's not about God or the church being dependent on your wallet because they are not. That is the opposite of what the Bible says. It's about the Lord transforming us on a very important level so that we can take on the life of Christ who is all about giving to us richly and sacrificially so that we can receive abundant life and then tell others what he has done. Amen.